Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Douglas McCarver in the 2014 film Christian Mingle, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I am very good, David, and thank you for that shout-out for the film Christian Mingle, not to be confused with... <laughs> this is a, isn't this a website for, for people who want to date? It, it, is a web, it is a website, but it is a movie, and it, and it figures, the website figures into the plot of the movie. It's, it's really kind of delightful. Uh, Lacey Chabert is the, is the star of it, and it is as close as I've read to a Frank Capra script in a long time. I'm so proud of Corbin Burnson. He directed it and wrote it and asked me to be in it. And it is such a delightful film. It is about uh, the kind of the tease of the film is it is a girl who is ready to give up on relationships uh, because every guy she meets is kind of a, a liar. And she figures if she signs up on Christian Mingle, the website, she is bound to find someone who's going to be honest and trustworthy, right? Well, the problem is she finds Mr. Right right away, and now she's stuck in the position of trying to convince him that she, in fact, is uh, <laughs> a Christian on Christian Mingle as opposed to someone who is just looking for a guy. And it turns out to be the most delightful movie uh, about people finding purpose in their life. It's a great romance. Uh, had a great time doing it. Very cool. Well, Christian Mingle is available right now on uh, DVD, and you can uh, pick it up where many DVDs are sold. Now, Stephen Tobolowski, it is currently uh, early February as this episode's going out. It's been a while since the last Tobolowski Files episode, and people have been wondering what's going on with the show. Uh, is it coming back? And I think uh, it has just been a really crazy time. Uh, I have started a new job, uh, and you have uh, suffered from uh, a remarkable array of uh, physical ailments. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not so remarkable, David. Apparently, it's very common. I uh, lost use of uh, one of my legs, my uh, meniscus tore, and I ruptured an ACL, and I couldn't walk anymore. And I w- was walking at the park and went click, I go down, I drew a crowd, which is a bad thing to do at a public park, and I went to the orthopedic surgeon that Kobe Bryant uses, I'm name dropping, and what the doctor told me was that it this kind of injury just happens to men my age. So that was depressing enough. But 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 I have to say, thanks to modern modern pharmacology, I'm doing very well. I'm walking now and I'm doing physical therapy. And uh, the prognosis over here, David, is good, but but we haven't we haven't really seen each other since the holidays, have we? No, we haven't. Um, uh, my actually, my family came into town for the holidays. That was very nice. Uh, my mom, dad, and my brother and sister in law they all came to Seattle. We watched the fireworks uh, shoot out of the Space Needle, which is really incredible um, to see. You know, explosions coming out of a national monument. That was pretty cool. Uh, how about you, Toba? How are your uh, holidays? 
Well, David, I know this will sound boring, but Anne and I, uh, Christmas morning, woke up at dawn and sat out in the garden and did absolutely nothing but enjoy the coming day, and it was absolutely magnificent. I think we went to bed early that night, like about 8.30, watching something like House Hunters International. And New Year's, we did kind of the same, but I realized that after a while, there's a certain thing that happens over the holidays, and... If I were to sum it up, I could say that these holiday seasons, David, they come and they go. And David, they are becoming more and more bittersweet. And as the years pass, the things that kill you is that so do the traditions that you came to love. So, for example, this Christmas and New Year's mark the end of the holiday Law & Order marathons. Now, I, I don't mean to say that they didn't show Law & Order on television. No, 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 not at all. It was on. It was on in various forms all the time, everywhere, day, night, and why not? They're great shows, great acting, great stories. But this is why I was always glued to my set over the holidays. But apparently some genius programmers got the same idea, and they saw that people loved this show so much, why reserve Law & Order marathons just for the holidays? Why don't we dedicate entire channels to playing the show all the time, every day, every night? And it came to pass. So now, watching Law & Order has become like listening to Bing Crosby singing Silver Bells all year long. I was lucky enough to be on two of the shows. I don't think this is a spoiler in that it's been on the air over 500 times, but I play a murdering pharmacist in Law & Order Criminal Intent and a pedophile, of course, on Law & Order SVU. Working on both shows was special and important to me. I learned a lot about life. I began shooting Criminal Intent in the fall of 2002. We shot in New York on the first anniversary of 9-11. We were filming outside of a church on Staten Island. Work stopped. We stood in silence for a minute. Someone rang a bell. It worked like a dark charm. My heart was broken again. And my mind drifted back to a moment from my distant past. I was a child building blocks in my room. I spent about four hours making a huge city, and then I decided to smash it all to bits. It was so much fun. Mom came down the hallway to see what all the noise was about. I was laughing, started to leave the room to watch some TV, and Mom said, where are you going? I said, my shows are on. Mom said, clean up this mess first. I began to complain, and Mom stopped me. She said, Stephen, it's easier to destroy than build. Now clean it up, then you can watch TV. It took hours to put everything away. I missed all of my shows. I know it's trivial in the scheme of all things, but from that day on, I was keenly aware of the cost of tearing things down. Law & Order Criminal Intent was also unique in that we finished shooting my episode one year later. Now, how does such a thing happen? Life. Catherine Irby, who played Detective Eames, one of the show's leads, was pregnant. She took a break to have her baby. Then the show went on vacation for three months. When work resumed, they began the new season. Producers called me at home in Los Angeles and told me they would find some time to fly me back to New York to finish my episode. That phone call came eight months later. I relearned my lines and finished the show with another director. 
I always thought it could be a record for the longest time it ever took to shoot a one-hour show. I spent most of my time on the set with Vincent D'Onofrio. Like his wildly idiosyncratic character, Detective Gorin, he talked about his passion, making guitars. In between scenes, he would show me his catalogs of various types of woods for the body and for the neck, rosewood, ebony, maple. Katie Irby positively glowed when I first met her, and I don't think it was because of the pregnancy. She was happy to see me by a strange Hollywood intersection. The first thing she said was, You're working with Julie Haggerty in your play, aren't you? Yes, I said. I, I play her boyfriend. Katie looked to the New York skyline and smiled and said, Well, she played my mother, and what about Bob? You are one lucky man. Julie is one of the angels on earth. Our eyes met and we laughed. No more had to be said. Any detective knows the truth reveals itself in many ways. When I shot Criminal Intent, it had only been on the air a couple of seasons, but it was still part of the Law & Order family. That meant it was a well-oiled machine. Well-oiled is an understatement when you talk about Law & Order SVU. When I worked on that show, it had been on the air over 10 seasons, and the process of shooting it was smooth like a pebble in a stream. Costumes, lighting, transportation, stunts, everything was effortless. I spent most of my time on that show with actor Chris Maloney, a.k.a. Detective Stabler. He had to beat me up a few times and grill me in the nasty green room with the dirty windows. I have rarely encountered a person like Chris. Success often changes people. Success on television often destroys people. Not Chris. He was funny, eloquent, surprising in so many ways. Law & Order SVU had their headquarters in New Jersey, so when I arrived at Kennedy Airport, I had to be taken out for my costume fitting. The studio out there was a ramshackle building situated in acres of marshland, probably used by the mob to dump bodies. I was introduced to Chris and Mariska. They were both very gracious and hoped I had a good time on the show. Afterwards, Transpo took me back to New York City. I had to shoot a small scene in Manhattan the next day. I was nervous, excited. I got up early for my first real view of New York City on this visit. Every time I go to New York, it's like the first time. There's nothing like that moment when you first go out on the street, and for me, it's always the smell. Diesel exhaust mixed with the fresh cold air from the water, mixed with the steam from the subways, intoxicating. Then there's the noise. Cars honking, men yelling, truck brakes squealing, distant whistles of doormen requesting cabs. It was 7 a.m. I figured I could find some breakfast dive, work on my lines, grab my script and hit the streets. And there was nothing. No noise, no hustle, no bustle. This wasn't the New York I remembered. Instead of being the city that never sleeps, it looked like the city that hit the snooze button. Everything was closed. In the distance... I saw a door swinging open. It was some place called the Brooklyn Diner. The name seemed dangerously generic, almost Disney-esque. It looked disturbingly fancy for a breakfast joint. That probably meant no Greek waiters that had been there for decades, and that they probably served eggs benedict and cappuccino instead of two eggs fried over easy with hash browns and a regular coffee. 
I walked to the front door, opened it, and then I heard behind me, Hey, Stephen. I turned, and there was a man there in a baseball hat, sunglasses, wearing cargo shorts. Uh, yes, I said. The man laughed and tilted down his shades. It's me, Chris Maloney. We're doing a show together. Chris, what are you doing here? He said, well, I got to town early. You having breakfast? Yeah. You want some company? Well, yeah, sure. Chris said, well, I don't want to intrude if you'd rather be alone. No, 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 Chris, not at all. It's just I can't believe it's you. Chris said, well, that's New York for you. He noticed my script. You want to run lines? Rehearse? Really? I said. Chris laughed. Well, only if you want to. You know, however you like to work. But we do have some good scenes. And I don't mind. Rehearsal is sort of a luxury on this show. Chris and I ordered breakfast. He held the script for me as I went through my part. We rehearsed our first interrogation scene. And then Chris stopped and said, Do you do much theater in Los Angeles? I said, well, I try to, Chris, but it's hard, you know, time-wise. Such a big commitment, and you never know if, well, you're going to get a job on Law and & Order, and you have to leave town for a couple of weeks. Yeah, he said. That's the catch, isn't it? Here I've had all the success so many actors dream of. I have a great job on a great show. They pay me a lot of money. It's provided a good life for my family, but if you just sit in that one spot... You lose why you became an actor in the first place. You don't get to grow, to be challenged. Now, don't get me wrong. I love what I do. But between you and me, if you were ever directing a play and you think I would be right for a part in it, ask. Even if it's for free, ask. It's never really about the money. Chris laughed and added, well, oh, it's always about the money when you're not working. I know that. But truthfully, Stephen... It's never about the money. I look back at my career and I never think, well, how much did they pay me for this or that? But I remember the times we lit it up. When we had a good performance or pulled something off, a scene or a speech, just a moment that affected the audience. That's what I remember. That's what makes me proud. We finished breakfast, shook hands, went our separate ways. Chris called back to me, hey, Stephen. Next time I see you, I'll be beating the crap out of you. I look forward to it, Chris. I had a lot of fun getting abused by Chris and Mariska on the set. When they called cut, Chris <laughs> always ran up, helped me to my feet. Are you all right, Stephen? I didn't step on you, did I? They used a bald stump man when things got rough. And when things got very, very, very rough, they doubled me with a bald mannequin wearing glasses. While the mannequin was being abused, I usually sat with Chris and talked about theater and ate muffins. I had time to sit and think about the enormous popularity of these shows. Although they share a common name, they are completely different. In Law & Order Criminal Intent, the audience usually knows pretty early on who the murderer is. The entertainment is derived by the ingenious way Detective Gorin figures it all out. If you haven't seen the show... He's a genius. He knows everything. Russian, popular types of drapery material, the Bowen induction cycle of igneous rocks, types of mustache wax used in the British cavalry, everything. Law and Order Criminal Intent is a show about the aristocracy of angels. 
that there are some people out there just smarter than we are, and they protect us from evil. Law and Order SVU is at the opposite end of the spectrum. It's about the democracy of justice. On that show, the police are not brilliant. They're not even bright. They're just determined. They don't quit. And the entertainment factor is the relentless pursuit of evil, even though our heroes get it wrong many times along the way. In fact, a lot of the fun is watching how many times Chris and Mariska get it wrong. For example, in my show, even though I was a pedophile and beaten up many times, I was innocent. Didn't matter. I get blown up anyway. The one thing both shows have in common is the genre. They fall into that phylum we call whodunit. Now, it's easy to think the attraction of the whodunit is mystery. It isn't really. The attraction is that mystery can be understood. Either through brilliance or hard work, enough of the clues can be uncovered and mystery is transformed into truth. There is a human need to know who is to blame and why. In a fluke of the improbable, two of my oldest friends from Oak Cliff grew up and trained to be FBI agents. I called them up whenever I need to do research on a part. I asked one of my friends why she trained to be in the FBI. She smiled and said, "'Cause I like to get the bad guys.' So you like the challenge, I asked. No, she said. It's really not that much of a challenge. I just like to make them pay. And then she laughed in a way that was a little creepy. What, what, what did you mean when you said it's not that much of a challenge? She said, well, everything you see on TV is a little twisted for entertainment's sake. Most of the time, it's pretty easy to catch someone. There are usually only three motives— Money, sex, revenge, and usually sex and revenge has something to do with the money. Criminals think they're being deceptive when they cover their tracks, but they can't cover their motives. I look at a situation and think, how would someone make money off of this? Then I think like a crook as to how I would hide the money, and I can usually get a pretty good idea of what happened after a couple hours of digging. I can get a whole history usually in a couple of days. Really? I said. She just smiled. How? I asked. Oh, I have my ways. And she continued to smile. I got nervous and ordered a martini. Money, sex, and revenge. Yeah, I can believe it. At least as far as it applies to motives of crime. However, most of us are not criminals. We don't even like criminals. With the exception of Tony Soprano, any of the Corleones, and Seth Green when he plays a computer hacker. It made me think the longevity of the various Law & Order series are not related to our fascination with crime. That's usually a toss-away before the first commercial. But we connect on a very profound level to the order part of the story. Who done it? That implies mystery. But mystery is made up of two very concrete components, how and why. 
we all know from the various little crimes we've committed, the how is usually based on opportunity and impulse. It's not thought through like a chess game, not even like checkers. In my experience, it's more like 52 pickup. The why is harder to pin down. I'm sure my friend is right. She's a straight shooter, literally. She knows what she's talking about, but at our next dinner in Dallas, I intend to challenge her on her theory of motive. I know motives are real. I suspect they're concrete. They move us to action, but they are incredibly elusive. Maybe that's why law and order marathons are so popular. We are looking for clues as to why we're held hostage by our own behavior. Why we do what we do has become the playground of the social sciences. Sorting out motive and blame is the entire foundation of our real world of law and order. One of my favorite methods of examination is an exercise in political science classes. It's called the circle of causation. It's based on a story. It goes something like this. A man has been sober for two years. To celebrate, he goes to a Mexican restaurant with members of his AA group. Yeah, I know it's a bad choice, but just stick with the story. While he's there, he's overcome with temptation. He sneaks away from the table and has a margarita, and then another. He goes up to the bartender, obviously tipsy, and asks for another drink. The bartender notices the man's condition, but serves him anyway. Our man is looped. He's humiliated that he's fallen off the wagon. He doesn't want to return to his friends. Instead, he gets in his car and attempts to drive home. At the same time, another man in the area is running across the street to a convenience store to get some cigarettes. He's in a hurry. He's distracted. He doesn't look both ways. He's hit and killed by our drunk driver. It's a theoretical tragedy. The question asked in class, what really happened and who is to blame? This is where one examines the circle or circles of causation. For example, is our man to blame for breaking his sobriety? Is it our bartender for serving someone who's already drunk? Is it our man again for giving in to his embarrassment and escaping to his car rather than returning to his support group? Was it the victim? whose rush for cigarettes made him careless in crossing the street. The circle of causation doesn't stop there. It can expand to the societal. Is it the fault of greedy corporations for catering to human weakness? Is it the fault of the government for granting liquor licenses to places that have parking lots? Or for allowing the sale of addictive substances like cigarettes that not only give you cancer, but make you run across the street at sundown to ensure you have enough smokes to get you through the night. The circle of causation can move backwards and forwards through time, almost becoming spiritual. For example, did the fault precede the event? Is the seed of this tragedy nestled in the human tendency of exposing ourselves to too much temptation? Was it caused by the power of shame, by our preference for denial rather than change? There is no right answer. The subject of our exercise is not just our man at the bar. It is you. 
Political scientists use stories like this to test a person's analysis. How you define the story defines where you live on the political spectrum. Those that think the fault lie in our central character or our man crossing the street without looking or our bartender tend to put more weight on individual responsibility. Those who blame the government or corporations for creating an environment where something like this can happen tend to believe in legislative solutions for all problems. Once you become familiar with the idea of the circle of causation, you can hear it in every political debate. Take the horror of 9-11. There was an initial desire to punish those responsible, but in that it was a suicide attack, the responsibility migrated to an individual, Osama bin Laden, then to a group, Al-Qaeda, then to a government, the Taliban of Afghanistan, and from there it migrated to an even larger circle that included Iraq and state-sponsored terrorism in general. Other voices said the circle of causation should include the American government for training bin Laden in the first place. Each person in a political debate feels they're right. They mistake being validated by having a position on the circle of causation for being validated by the truth. This is why you shouldn't talk about politics at the dinner table. The takeaway in political science class is that any problem has multiple causes, which is the educated way of saying that we don't have a clue. The only reason why this matters is that we base a lot of our future on what we think happened in the past. Poorly defining the circle of causation isn't the only danger in trying to understand and predict behavior. If you go back to our story of the recovering alcoholic in the Mexican restaurant, there is a strong temptation to believe that if the chain of events were interrupted at any point, tragedy could have been avoided. That isn't a given. Causes and effects may be logical, but whose logic? There is another theory much older than political science, that the workings of our fate are in the hands of a greater circle of causation than we could ever imagine. The Greeks believed the gods of Mount Olympus were responsible for the twists and turns of life, why evil seemed to be rewarded, why the good seemed to be punished. It was not enough for them to believe that cause and effect was a simple matter of not having a second margarita. The circle of causation was affected by wrongdoing. And not just yours. The gods could force you to pay for the wrongs of your father, or your mother, or their fathers and mothers. It was very, very complicated. So complicated there was no way to keep track of it. Society evolved and created the roles of priests and oracles as a way to get as much usable information as possible to keep on the right side of fate. Sometimes having all the information didn't help. The gods played favorites. They fought among themselves and tried to undo the plans of other immortals by ruining the lives of people on earth. The divine infighting could bring about the death of a powerful leader, his family, or his entire nation. No one was immune from the wrath of the heavens. The political scientists could make the connection that the greater the belief in the gods of Olympus, the greater the national insecurity. 
This would place more and more responsibility on the government to avoid angering Zeus, which could lead to stricter prosecution of heresy laws, which could lead to something unthinkable like the arrest, trial, and forced suicide of Socrates, arguably the heart and soul of the Golden Age of Greece. One could therefore argue that religion led to a sort of national self-destruction. But the Greeks didn't invent the notion of a complicated circle of causation. Oh, no, no. The science of predicting the future had been a mess for centuries before. In Egypt and Mesopotamia, all events began and ended with the stars. The early observation of the heavens clearly recognized that some things moved while other things remained fixed. Upon further observation, the things that moved seemed to have predictability— like the phases of the moon, the orbits of the planets, scattering a few spectacular events like a meteor shower or a supernova, early science sought to understand the plan buried within these movements. Well, they were doomed from the start. Even if their premise was correct, their input was wrong. The Earth was not at the center of the universe. They had no idea what was really happening up there. Some of their mistakes are still with us today. The expression in the TV series Seventh Heaven comes from ancient astronomers' belief that there were seven layers to heaven based on the observation that there were seven planets. The circle of causation could suggest that science has led to surrounding our lives with layers of false mythology. Still, we look for reasons as to why we do what we do. I think all of us blame ourselves for our many mistakes, then we easily blame others. All of us have blamed the foolishness of government or the greed of corporations. But many times, we look beyond ourselves for an answer. The circle of causation is perplexing. Socrates said the difference between what we understand and what we don't understand is passion and that man's weakness was not a lack of understanding, but a lack of passion. As an experiment in political science, I looked at an event in my life to understand what happened and why, to try to understand who'd done it. To honor Socrates, I picked a subject I'm still very passionate about, my horseback riding accident in Iceland and my broken neck. This is the untold story. For new listeners to the Tobolowsky Files, listen to episode 28, The Afflictions of Love. That'll give you the basics. But the shorthand version is that my wife and I went horseback riding in Iceland. We were very near the end of our trek, riding on the side of an active volcano. My horse was in the lead. We were hit by a freak wind that lifted me and my horse off the ground and threw us onto the other side of the road. My horse went a little nuts, took off with me dangling off of the saddle, and somewhere on the other side of the mountain I was thrown onto a hardened lava flow. I suffered a terrible concussion. I broke my neck in five places. The next few hours changed the course of my life. Now, if I were to apply the circle of causation to that horrible day, the story doesn't become clearer. It brings up more questions. The first circle naturally points at my horse. 
The horse I was riding on this leg of the trip was a fellow known as Little Red. Every horse has a different temperament. Little Red was a real son of a bitch. He was jumpy by nature. He had to ride at the front of the herd. Timing-wise, that put me on the exposed area of the mountain when the wind hit. The next circle of causation goes back in time. Why was I riding this nasty horse on this leg of the trip in the first place? It was because I was almost killed earlier that day. On the morning ride, I had a very calm horse, a beautiful mare named Myra. We had to cross a river and climb a trail on the other side that went up a 40-foot cliff. The trail was steep, but not particularly dangerous. That's the inherent problem with horses, self-deception. They're always potentially dangerous. I crossed the river and started up the trail when I heard the sound of hoofs. There was a family with small children on horseback behind me, and one of their horses got spooked and started running with a little boy in the saddle. That started a chain reaction. All of the horses in their group began running uncontrollably. They splashed across the river and up the trail. They came charging up behind us, forcing Myra and me off the trail onto the cliff face. Myra struggled to grab onto something. We were on vertical rock, about 20 feet over the river and about 20 feet from the top. Myra hung by her front hooves while she kicked with her back legs, trying to propel herself to safety. I went from horizontal to vertical in less than five seconds. I grabbed onto the front of the saddle to keep from falling backwards into the river. The saddle started to give. Anne was on another part of the trail, and she shouted out, Stephen! Stephen, grab on to the main. In my terror, I had forgotten the various strategies for dealing with a runaway horse, which Myra wasn't. She was a desperate horse. She was a strong horse. She was trying not to fall in the river. But when you are in an emergency horse situation, grab on to the main. The horse will not go anywhere without it. I grabbed it just as I fell out of the saddle and was hanging from Myra's back as she clung to the rock face. To my amazement, the horse began to climb, like a cat on the living room drapes. I never imagined such a thing was possible. She climbed up the vertical rock wall with me hanging onto her mane. My face was buried in her withers. All I was aware of was her effort. I heard her breath, her grunts, her groans. I heard the beating of her heart. We made it to the top. The head of the riding party helped me to the ground. Myra collapsed in some tall grass and lay on her side panting. I ran over to her. She couldn't lift her head. She just looked at me with that big horse eye gasping for air. I asked our guide if she was all right. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, She is. She just gave you everything she had. She can't ride any more today. I knelt down beside Myra and said, She saved my life. Our guide knelt beside her as well and stroked her neck. Yes, she saved you. A horse will do that. That's why I love them so much. I sat in the meadow with Myra while our group took a moment to gather their collective breath. I fed her some grass. I gave her some water. I thanked her in human talk. I think she understood me in a horse way. She was a great horse. We saddled up again, and the head of our group said, 
Myra is done for the day. We need to find another horse for you. You can ride Little Red. In my mind, the circle of causation continued back in time to the realm of mystery. Two weeks before the trip, I was on the phone with a therapist I'd been speaking to for about three months. I told her I had appreciated her advice, her input, but this was going to be our last conversation. She was professionally disappointed that our talks were coming to an end. And then she said, Stephen, I know you pay me for advice and perspective. I feel like I have to tell you something, something important. I've always had a sort of gift, a psychic gift. I know some people think things like that are nuts. You have to be careful what you say when you're a therapist. But since this is our last conversation, I need to warn you. I've had several strong feelings about your trip to Iceland. Don't go. I see terrible danger for you. Please don't go. Well, thanks, I said, but already have my ticket. And when I was sitting in the grass, feeding Myra, counting my lucky stars, my second thought was, damn, she was right. I was almost killed. And I sat in the cold Icelandic sunshine with the belief I had just avoided tragedy, a tragedy predicted by my therapist. I shook my head in disbelief as I saddled up Little Red. It was just a little more than an hour's ride to Mount Hitler, the volcano at the end of the trail. The head of our party told me I would have to ride in the lead. Little Red got nervous if he wasn't at the front of the pack. After the fall of Little Red, I was in and out of consciousness for the next several hours. I remember bits and pieces from the back of an ambulance. I remember Anne's face. I remember a 40-minute period in the hospital when I was very conscious and began telling jokes nonstop. I think I was trying to demonstrate to Anne, to my doctor, and to our Icelandic friend Stina that I was in good spirits. So I told the joke about, how does a crazy person walk through the woods? They take the psychopath. Did you hear about the Eskimo who sat on the iceberg? He got Polaroids. On and on. I couldn't stop. It must have been horrifying for them. It was about 10 p.m. I know because there's a picture of me in the hospital room with my neck in a brace and a clock in the background. We're in the land of the midnight sun, so it was as bright as noon outside. Anne looked out of the window and said, Boy, your number was really up today. Twice. Twice you should have been dead. That's when I told Anne about my therapist's prediction. Anne became very quiet. Anne's silence disturbed me. It jarred something loose from my lost hours. I was in the back of the ambulance. Anne was looking down at me and asked, Do you want me here? 
pieces of a puzzle flew together. On criminal intent, this is when Detective Gorin would throw my file on the table, stare at me sideways, and ask why I was talking to a therapist on the phone in the first place. My answer was as crushing as it was unavoidable. I was certain my marriage with Anne was over. I was talking to a therapist about the prospects of getting a divorce. I have a memory from the back of the ambulance of moving my finger to touch Anne's hand, and I whispered to her, Please stay. Anne gave me a look that was part joy, part duty, all heartbreak. It was midnight when Stina checked me out of the hospital. She drove us to a 24-hour pharmacy for pain medicine, then drove over an hour in the direction of southwestern Iceland to the Hotel Ranga, our headquarters for the horseback riding adventure. I walked into the hotel under my own power, went straight to the bar, and they had a piano there, and I began to play a Beethoven sonata to see if my hand still worked. They did. Amazing. Tony Shalhoub and Brooke Adams were waiting for us in the dining room. These two dear souls were on our trek with their daughter. It was Tony's first horseback riding adventure, not Brooke's. Her sister had an accident like mine in Africa. It was probably Brooke that saved my life. She knew from her sister's catastrophe there was something seriously wrong with me, from my disorientation, my falling in and out of consciousness. Brooke is the one who insisted I be taken to the hospital. The relief on their faces when they saw me walking in was as healing as Anne holding my hand in the ambulance. At this point in time, none of us knew I had what my doctor in America would call a fatal injury. The doctor in Reykjavik said I had a single hairline fracture of a neck vertebra. But like the ancient astrologers, he was wrong. In reality, I had broken five of my vertebrae completely, multiple breaks, and my central vertebra, known to neck aficionados as C4, had been crushed. I was never meant to have made it off of that mountain. We flew back to America, and the healing process began. Anne had to do everything for me. She had to help me get dressed, occasionally helping me eat and drink. She had to drive me everywhere. She had to sit with me in every doctor's office and be there for every test. She drove me to my audition for Glee. Three and a half months passed. Finally, the doctor said it was safe for me to take my brace off. There was a general sense of relief that we dodged several bullets and a hand grenade. But there was now an unspoken question. Now that I had recovered, would I call the therapist again? I didn't. I asked Anne to marry me again instead. See, we never had a wedding in Memphis 20 years before. We were in too big of a hurry. Anne was pregnant, so we had to run to the courthouse to make it official before she started to show. Anytime you get married... You make a lot of promises, huge promises, promises no one really thinks about when they say I do. After my accident, in spite of everything that was going on between us, Anne was there in sickness, for poorer, for worse, almost unto death, she didn't part. My general advice is that when someone keeps their promises after 20 years when there's every reason not to, marry them.
Quite by accident, this meant we would remarry for our 20th wedding anniversary. But this time, we could have a religious ceremony. Along the way, Anne became Jewish. Don't ask. It's another very, very complicated circle of causation. Our rabbi and our cantor offered to do the ceremony in our backyard. Well, neither of us knew anything about Jewish weddings except stomping on a glass. Anne began doing research. One of the advantages of being Jewish is that we have several thousands of years of tradition from which to pick and choose. So we started the celebration with the men and women in separate rooms, sort of. The men drank shots of vodka while the women gathered around Anne and gave her presents. Any tradition is easy to embrace when vodka is involved. We ate whole smoked salmons, Persian rice, chocolate cookies, pies, and all that was before the wedding cake. After the vodka and before the cake, we had the marriage ceremony. Our cantor, Judy Aronoff, who I consider the Frank Sinatra of Jewish song, graced us with a few tunes of celebration and hymns of union. I stood under the chuppah, which is the canopy under which the bride and groom stand to be married. Anne found a very old tradition she wanted to try. The husband stands under the chuppah and waits for his bride. Before she joins him, she walks around him seven times. Seven. Perhaps it relates to seven heavens. Who knows? A lot of people have discarded this tradition. It's understandable. It takes a long time. It's boring for the guests, especially if they're hungry. It fell out of favor sometime in the last 200 years. Modern thinking suggested it discriminated against the woman making her circle her man. That's one way to interpret it. Anne and I practiced the day before in the backyard to make sure she could walk on the grass in her fancy shoes and that she didn't fall into the rabbit hole. We giggled and started to feel this whole circling thing could turn out to be silly. We were wrong. The day of the ceremony, as I stood before Rabbi Bernhardt, under the chuppah, surrounded by friends and family, I felt a sudden hush. I saw a head's turning, which meant Anne had walked into the yard. She began to circle me the first time. I could hardly breathe. My stomach nodded. Everything vanished but her. I felt Anne's presence all around me, seen and unseen. She was before me. She was behind me. Her path described my new circle of causation. With each step, my bond to Anne grew stronger. And yes, the walking took a long time, but you know what? We earned it. We knew what those seven circles meant from the last three months of terror and effort. It took a lot to get here. Two horses, a windstorm, and promises kept. But sometimes you just have to hold on to the mane. Life is the opposite of the TV show Jeopardy. We rarely get an answer in the form of a question. We get questions in the form of an answer. It's like any good law and order. To find satisfaction, you only need that one moment at the end of the story where it appears that mystery has been transformed into truth. That all right, Give my gun away when it's a load. Is that all right? Don't shoot it, I'm supposed to hold Is that alright?
Give my gun away and some notice that That was Circle of Causation, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stay tuned to hear some Groundhog Day trivia from Stephen Tobolowsky, but in the meantime, Tobo, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Yeah, I think uh, the best place to go, you, you can get all of the podcasts at SlashFilm.com, and they're all there, as well as iTunes. You, you can go there and on Facebook and Twitter. David, what, what, are, what, where can you find me? You're at Tobolowski on Twitter and at facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski on Facebook. So Absolutely. And I'm going to be doing uh, stories on Facebook, little stories uh, whenever I can. So check in on that regularly. Right. People are wondering how they can get their Tobo fix in between episodes. Follow him, facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski to get that stuff. That's so, right. Anyway, um, Tobo, you have some trivia to share with us. I had dinner with Danny Rubin, who's the screenwriter of Groundhog Day. And I was commenting on how I couldn't think of another film in which the reality of the film is dominated reality of reality. In that nowadays people say, oh, it's going to be just like Groundhog Day, meaning the repeated day format of the film which, of course, has nothing to do with the real Groundhog Day. So I asked Danny, I said, since the repeated day idea of the movie has nothing to do with the holiday at all, why did you pick Groundhog Day? It could have been anything. It could have been a repeated, hey, Charles Dickens did it with Christmas Carol. You have a repeated Christmas. And this is why Groundhog Day is Groundhog Day. Danny told me he got the idea for the movie on January 28th or 29th, he was so excited, he turned on his computer, turned on his calendar to see what holiday or what event could happen. And because Groundhog Day was the very next event on the calendar, that's why he made the movie about Groundhog Day. I guess we are all grateful that he didn't write that script a month later. Otherwise, it would have been called St. Patrick's Day. It would have been a much different film, I think. <laughs> That's right. It would have been St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Tobo. And we hope all of you listeners have a happy Groundhog Day this year. Uh, and thank you for listening to the, the Tobolowski Files. We will see you guys later. Adios. Get my Is that all right? Is that all right?